This is the Christian Life Center podcast. Here at CLC, we are messengers of hope, where we believe in taking God's message of hope everywhere we go to everyone we meet. From wherever you are, be encouraged by this week's message. Well, today we're continuing in our series of searching. Take your outlines out. I don't have a lot of time, but uh, I've got uh, a very, very uh, powerful, deep message today that I want to talk to us about. We've been looking at many different topics that people are searching, people that are looking for answers to. Now, what we're striving to do for you is to equip you with answers, to empower you. Maybe you're asking the same questions, but more than that, as we move amongst uh, uh, the society that we live among, that we will be empowered with the answers. Today, we're going to be looking at, and I just got to say right away, I'm a little anxious to preach today's word. I'm usually not real anxious, but I'm a little anxious today because I run up against the opportunity. Uh, of sharing God's word in a way that could offend everybody here today. And so I just hope there's a congregation here next week and, and, uh, and because I'm sure I'm gonna provoke us and rub us and that is because we're going to be talking about some very, very hot topics today. Many times we hear what the church is against but we don't always hear what the church is for. And today I want to flip it a little bit and I want to look at what is the church for? What does God say? What does God say is important to him on some of the most divisive issues in society today? I don't know if I'll get through all of them, but we're going to look at three specific topics that are very, very divisive. And I just pray that today, that as we're walking through this, we're helping your faith seek understanding. In fact, that's what theology is, is theology is helping your faith seek understanding. Understanding about God and God's ways and what God has done and how God is gonna move today because that's his nature and that character. And so faith is helping you seek understanding and we wanna give you understanding today on three specific divisive Topics. Now today, please hear my heart. I come as I share this word not with judgment. I come with not a spirit of condemnation because that is not of God. And I don't come today representing any political party. Today I come representing, I hope, the word of God and representing God and helping us to understand what should we be for not what we're against, but what we're for, and it's not related to our, our past and what we've done that would bring judgment on us or condemnation on us or, 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 or any political party that would wanna run it. So today, my heart, and I hope I can, I can share it in peace and in love today, I can share what God's word said. A theologian by the name of J.I. Packer says this, we are cruel to ourselves If we live in this world without knowing the God whose world it is and who runs it, the world becomes a strange, mad, painful place for those who don't know God. Can I hear an amen to that? In Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 23, I have an outline for you. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, the outline is uh, uh, downloadable as well on our app. Let's look what Jeremiah says. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this. This is what you boast about. That he understands and knows me. Who who knows me? Who knows God? He knows me. And that I am the Lord, the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these, underline it, I delight. What do I delight in? Kindness, justice, and what? Righteousness. I delight in, declares the Lord. Now, this is very, very powerful for you and I. But the problem is, as I get started... And I'm not just warming up, but I have to lay this context for us, is that we've got issues in society that will make us uncomfortable when we hear about these topics today. And the major issue is a moral issue. And in every culture, 
every culture will develop a code of morality. What does that mean is what is right and what is wrong? They will develop this code of morality. The problem is who is developing the code? Who is saying what is right and wrong? Because the real issues that we're facing and that we will talk about as believers, as the light in the world today, the real issue is our ethics and our values. What do we believe? What do we say is that which we believe? We, 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 we live in this world where others are setting our values and our, our ethics. And the reality is life cannot work without values and without ethics, but the dilemma is who determines it? Who determines what is right or wrong? That's why in week one, we said culture cannot, culture and society and government cannot decide for you and I what is right and wrong. So we started with what is absolute truth. If we know what gives us truth, then when we begin to feel a pressure from culture and culture tries to squeeze us into its mold and government and, and political parties and so many things that happen around us begin to say, if it peer pressures or friends or, or employers, or and I could go on and on, that this is what's right and this is what's wrong, it gets us into a box and it'll say, you can believe what you wanna believe, but don't get out of your box. We looked at that in week one. Well, that was great in week one because we're saying, yes, amen, hallelujah. We believe in absolute truth until we start dealing with some hard issues. And when we start dealing with some tough topics, all of a sudden, we begin to realize that someone might say, this is wrong for you or right for me, or that's right for you and wrong for me. But the problem is, is truth then becomes truth to the one that believes what they wanna believe if there's not an absolute truth. That's why we started there. And the problem for the church, I've gotta be honest, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ for us, the problem is, is we say we have values. We say the word of God is the absolute truth and then we don't live by them. Our lives don't line up to it. We don't really live what we say. We believe these values in the word and there's not an alignment and therefore there's not a unity among believers that says this is what we believe. This is what we stand for. Now we do it in love and we stand in love, but our faith has got to seek understanding. So I want you to know before I get started, I love you. Say, pastor, I love you too. And I hope, I hope you'll be back next week. I'll actually be on vacation so I won't be depressed, but I hope you'll be back next week. But our first topic of what we stand for is we stand for the institution of biblical marriage. And it's coming on the screen. The, oh, it's on the back, where is it? I don't know where it's at. I'm lost. Say it with me. We stand for the institution of biblical marriage. What is biblical marriage? We've got to stand upon the institution of that. Marriage is vital. It's vital to our nature and, and, and it's vital for us in society. God himself instituted marriage by creating and, 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 and bringing the first man and woman together and he, he breathed into uh, Adam and he created man and it's imperative for you and I to understand, to have clarity, to teach it, to faithfully uphold what the Bible says about marriage and how God brought the first man and woman together and when he brought them together, he instituted what we can call marriage. Two sexes, male and female, are, are, are created in the divine image of mankind, is created in the image of God. Look with me on the screen, Genesis 1 and verse 27. God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them. What? Male and female, he created them. Now, the reality is neither male or female alone can, can procreate the, the race and fulfill the divine purposes of God. 
And therefore, out of Adam, God created Eve, and he created, the Bible said, a, a helper, a, a help suitable, a, a perfect complement, one that would complement Adam, and it was from his side, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, God created Eve. And in that, Adam and Eve, we see, is the institution of marriage. And it's in that institution that we see that procreation of the human race is that which God designed. The way God created human beings and why he created us and the way he created us is to, to live on earth. And he brings us into this place where he shows us that Adam and Eve were intended for one another. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 22, a few verses later, God then used the rib that he had taken from the man, Adam, to make woman and presented her to him, to Adam. Now, I love this part. I got to read into it. The man and all guys, we can understand this. The man said, finally. What Adam was saying was, wow. I've been looking at all these animals. I've been looking at all these other creations that God made. Wow, finally somebody like me, and I'm attracted to this. Wow. I like to say it to the young people. The motor just got started. It was like, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Name her woman, for she was made from man. Here we see that God is creating. And in the creation, we see that God's command was that the first man and the first woman would become one flesh. They would become one. There would be a, a bond and a unity for mutual pleasure in their loving relationship, but also so that they could recreate uh, and populate the earth. It was God's plan. So marriage from the very beginning was a heterosexual relationship. It was the institution of marriage that God put together, male and female, and therefore God said man will leave his father and his mother and he will unite with his wife and they will become what? One flesh. They will be united together. It's how God designed it and created it. When you look in scripture, nowhere do you see that in scripture does the Bible endorse a homosexual or lesbian union because God had instituted what is the biblical institution of marriage. So what do we stand for is that which God created. And all through scripture, we can see anything outside of how God created a biblical marriage to be is judged to be sinful. If you're one that would like to write down scriptures in Leviticus 18, verse 22, God talks about this. In Leviticus 20, verse 13, in Romans 1, in verse 26 and 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 11, all of these are helping us to see what God instituted in the biblical marriage. Now, when God instituted it, it was God's plan that marriage would be a permanent union, the coming together. A man will leave, as I said, his parents' home, and he will unite to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And for all the married folks in the house, that's a beautiful, beautiful union that God put together not only to procreate, but for a loving relationship. Can I just get an agreement in the house today? There's a spiritual union that takes place in that institution of marriage. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 19 talks about it. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter five. And in fact, they are quoting all the way back to Genesis and they're laying a foundation of what is the premise of a biblical marriage. In fact, Jesus even quotes, uh, and, and he uses that quote of, of a man leaving his father and mother and being united. And the idea when Jesus spoke it in the Greek is that you would be glued together with your spouse. A man and a woman in a biblical institution of, of marriage, they would be bound together. And then Jesus adds, therefore, what God has bound together, united, glued together, let man not separate. 
It's a spiritual union that God binds together when you make that decision and therefore let man not separate. Can I hear it? It's just an agreement today. So God intended for marriage to be a monogamous relationship. It's something that the creator created and he established it, that there would be the focus in a biblical marriage of one man with one woman, amen? And, and, and it's this pair that's coming together. Now, let me just say, polygamy, it was in the Old Testament. We see that there are examples of that and yet, polygamy never was upheld in Scripture as the ideal. In fact, it was criticized in Scripture numbers, a uh, number of places where it creates division and dissension and strife within a family where there is a poly- poly- polygamous relationship. And so we have these passages over and over throughout Scripture that speak about one man, one husband, with one woman, one wife. Let me give you a couple other verses. If you take taken notes, Psalms 128, verse 3, Proverbs 5, 18, Proverbs 31, verse 10 through 29, all over these scriptures, and Jesus even affirms it, is God's ideal from the very beginning that there is a monogamous relationship. Speaking of a man, in fact, the scripture speaks of it in the singular, a man and a woman becoming one flesh. When I look at this idea of a, of a biblical marriage, let me also just go a little bit further on this bonding together, the, the gluing, the unifying together. I wanna use another word for that. You may wanna write it down, and that is marriage is a covenant. Say covenant. It's a solemn binding, and, and God binds them together in this covenant. Let me read to you in Malachi. Malachi chapter two. Malachi says this in verse 13, another thing you do, he's speaking uh, against some things, you, you flood the Lord's altars with tears, you weep and well because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accept them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask, why? Now, as a pastor, I get those questions right there all the time. Why is God not answering my prayers? I'm tithing. Why is God not doing this? I'm, I'm doing what I, I, I'm supposed to do. The Lord says, you weep, you, re- you wail, you, you give your offerings. And, and, and you're saying, that the Lord's not accepting it. Why? It's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and your wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her Though she is your partner, there is a covenant. She's your partner. The wife of your marriage covenant has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit. They are his. And why one in a question? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with your wife of your youth. God says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. So he shows us powerful, powerful scripture that God in our covenant unifies us together. Now, I don't have time to go deep, but there are places in the New Testament that shows us the, 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 the scriptural, if it would be, even though God hates divorce, he knows that we are human. He knows that we have emotions and, and our emotional uh, 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 stamina may not be able to handle some circumstances like adultery and abuse and, and, and things that would be unsafe. And so therefore, God would show us that he hates divorce. And yet if two partners are not walking to, to try to resolve and, and there is adultery and unfaithfulness or abuse that would be unhealthy to a family or to children or to a wife or a husband, that, that, that he gives us some grounds of how that could be processed. And my encouragement with you would be to seek spiritual counsel. Speak 
with someone that can process. Don't wait till it's too late. Don't wait until the bank account is, is, is dry and empty and there's nothing that's there and no deposit is going to help it in any way. Don't wait that long. Seek the advice and the help of spiritual couples that are around you, spiritual leaders that are around you. Because I believe that if you will begin to pray and then if both couples are godly and in Christ and striving to live with God, you can restore anything that will come in and would want to tear you apart. I'm telling you, from pastors all the way down, you have to work on your biblical marriage. And yet, there's always been a commitment to the covenant. There's always been a commitment to the relationship. And when there's, there's times, and every marriage will have it from pastors all the way down uh, uh, into the, uh, you know, from how old of a, how, how, let me say how, how long you've been married to how newlyweds you are. There's going to be times where you're walking through that and God shows us what the institution of a biblical marriage is all about. So the first thing that we stand for is we stand for the institution of a biblical marriage. The second thing that we stand for, I just decided to get them all out in one day and let's just like knock it out in one day. We stand for the sanctity of human life. Will you say that for me? We stand for the sanctity, there it is, of human life. You see, God reveals in scripture, he shows us that he is the creator of the universe. He created the world and all living creatures in it. Genesis chapter one talks about that. And humans were his highest form of creation. What God did in, in creating man and woman was the highest form of that which he created. And in that, he had a plan and a purpose. I read to you a few moments ago that God said, let us make man, and that represented man and woman, let us create humans, mankind, in our image. By the way, there is a snapshot of the Trinity right there, in our image, not in my image, but in our image. We see it, and God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. And when he created mankind, we see here that God had a plan and a purpose and it was far beyond anything else that we could imagine in what he wanted to do. And here, every life we can understand then from scripture is something that God values because he created it. When God creates, God creates perfectly. Regardless of the circumstances in this sense of human life and the sanctity of life, it's a perfect creation in God's eyes. Can I just get an agreement? By making humans, God is showing us, he's helping us to understand that he created. It was his plan. It was his purpose from the very beginning. When God made mankind, he created us above every other form of life. And therefore, as our creator, he had a plan and a purpose. And that purpose was a purpose that he established for the earth. And we were placed on it as a, a, as a creation of the divine image of God. And in that divine image of God, he gave life and he is the sustainer of life and he gives us power to live life from the very beginning to the very end. So when we set that up as our basis here, we can begin to understand that we are created in the image of God and we have a mandate. We talked about it a little earlier in the last question or the last stance of what we stand for is that we are to be fruitful and increase in numbers. Genesis chapter one, verse 23, fill the earth and subdue it. Speaking to mankind, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every living creature that moves on the ground. You see, we see again in this that humans, man, man and woman, were superior to all other life forms. Humans are, are given the responsibility, we call it stewardship, the responsibility to custodian the earth. 
every man has been understand, every man should understand that God has created us in his likeness and in his image, and he has a plan and a purpose. Therefore, every life from conception to death is valued by God, respected by God, nurtured and sustained by God, and even protected by God. Now, when we talk about this sanctity of life, the Bible describes a moral order in which all of us need to follow. And in the end of life, all persons, every one of us will stand before God and give account for our actions. In fact, Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 5.10, that we will appear before the Lord. So when we talk about the sanctity of life, what that which God created and, and God values, I would encourage us to recognize that the Bible recognizes that women are to give birth and in that giving birth that God is the one that has created from that moment of conception. If we take some biblical examples, we see right away with the birth of Jesus himself, the, the conception of Jesus in the Virgin Mary. Here we see that Mary from the very beginning when she accepted what God had planned for her, the angel made the, angel made this announcement, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son. The angel spoke that to Mary. And as the angel informed Mary that she was going to not only give birth to the Son of God, but that her cousin Elizabeth was also, pre uh, was also pregnant. She says, Elizabeth, or the angel says, Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. When you look at just these two examples... Scripture makes it clear that in this prenatal phase with Jesus and John the Baptist, they were already recognized as males and they were already recognized as that which God had planned and God had purposed. So the Bible gives us this understanding that, and it recognizes that the prenatal phase of life as a child is not just, just a, an appendix to a woman's body that can just easily be aborted at, at will, but this is a divine creation by God, planned by God for the purpose of God. Now, even in Scripture, even in scripture, when pregnancy in biblical times was of some kind of illicit relationship or, 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 or something that was, would, would be held as questionable in society. In fact, the daughters of Lot willingly became pregnant in incestual, I can't say it, relationship. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because my tongue will not say it. Incest, I can't say it. My brain just blocks it right there. But in that incest of their relationship, which, which would not be approved or, or accepted and, and something that would, would be seen as, as right, even within that, we see that life still came forth. Bathsheba. Bathsheba conceives at the, uh, the, 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 the adultery uh, and relationship with King uh, uh, David. She, she conceives and, and she gives birth. Uh, and, and, and in that, she loses the child. But yet, God sees that that, that was something that, that, that was, was, was taking place within Bathsheba. And, and there is no abortion that takes place. But in that process, there is life that Bathsheba has. In none of these cases do we see, in these cases, that the unborn is considered unworthy or requiring an abortion. The Bible recognizes that God is active in this creative process, regardless of how the conception takes place, that God is involved and he is forming that life. In fact, the, the story of Leah, we preached on Leah a number of years ago, the wife of Jacob. The scripture says that when the Lord saw Leah and she was not loved, he opened her womb and Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. You see that God was involved. So when we talk about the sanctity of life, it cannot be as believers separated from that which God the creator has ordained and is involved with. 
Even in Job, we see in Job's example, Job compared himself to his servants and he, ha- and he asked, did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? Job 31, verse 15. So each person yet unborn has equal value and status with God. Job indicates it. These examples that we're seeing indicates it. In fact, Scripture tells us in Job 34 and verse 19 that God has no partiality and there is no respecters of persons in the eyes of God, rich or poor. We all work with our hands and God values all. Can I just get an amen? Now, David sums it up well, and I'm only scratching the surface on some of these issues But David sums it up in Psalm 139 and verse 13. Look on the screen with me or in your outline. I'm gonna read from the Living Bible. David said, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and you knit me together in my mother's womb. See, what I'm trying to help us understand is the sanctity of life is built in the foundation that God is the creator, And if God is sovereign and God values and that God is the one that has designed the the, the human race and God has decided that one is to give birth, then God is the creator, is the sovereign one, understands what's before us. And this is what David said. He knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in the utter seclusion, as I was woven together in dark of the in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. God is the creator. In Galatians chapter one, look at this verse. Paul says this in verse 15, when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased. So the Bible recognizes that God has plans for the unborn child. He knows the potential. He sees what's before them. When God called Jeremiah to the prophetic ministry, he indicated that the ordination was prenatal when he says this in Jeremiah Chapter one, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and I appointed you as my prophet to the nation. His prophetic ministry, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart. I had an anointing on you. I had a plan and a purpose for you. If you could hear the stories of those that were not aborted, that went on to to create, that went on to be uh, uh, men and women that God used in ministry and and, and, and in science and and in in society in so powerful ways, you could see here what Jeremiah is saying. When you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nation. So here we see, and God is helping us to recognize that he is sovereign in all things, including the quality of life of the unborn child. So when we, as society, reject God, when we go our own way and we do our own thing, there will be consequences to sin. And those consequences are consequences that sometimes will lead to a pregnancy And yet in that, the solution of what we stand for is the sanctity of life. I know it's gotten quiet, and I share the word with us today because it's so powerful for us to remind ourselves that God is sovereign. In the later days of recent, right now, there's a lot of debate. It's not, for me, a political debate at all. The rights of women to choose in the later days, in recent days, is an argument 
the argument of that women alone bear the physical consequences of pregnancy and therefore women should have the right to choose freely for an abortion called pro-choice. Well, we stand for the sanctity of life. We're not taking away a choice of a woman, but what we are saying as believers is we believe that God has created whatever the circumstances of that life that God has created in in this mother or this woman, whatever it is that led to that, God is the one that has created that one that is in her womb. And therefore in God's sovereignty, we stand knowing that God will guide, God will protect, God will go with her her and God will help her and therefore the church has got to be prepared and I thank the Lord for organizations like four kids and other organizations that can come along and partner with the church and partner with society that when there is a pregnancy and a young mother is not able or capable to care for that young one that there are organizations that will come along and to help the sanctity of life so that that life that has come into this world can have a home and a future and can have love and be provided for the way God would plan for that little one to be provided for. We stand for the sanctity of life. I'm afraid to go one more. (laughs) I love you. You know I love you, right? I want to share one more. And, uh, and I know it's going to get me uh, tripped up on time, so I'm going to do it a little quicker. But we stand for God's kingdom. Say God's kingdom. For 18 years of my adult life, I lived outside of the United States. When I came back to Christian Life Center, I came back to what I would call a pretty peaceful time in many ways in society. But what surprised me over the last 10 years of being back in America is the division that's in the church over politics. So much controversy, so much hate, so much anger, so much offense. It's broken my heart to watch two people serve in areas of ministry and in politics begin to bring this angst and anger and frustration and they both end up leaving the church. Breaks my heart. The reality is that we are, we are living in two kingdoms and both kingdoms are in conflict with one another. There is a spiritual kingdom. That spiritual kingdom is an eternal kingdom that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth to champion and to provide a way for us as believers to spend all of eternity in, the spiritual kingdom with God. And then there is a temporal kingdom that we live in, and they're at odds with one another. John 18, verse 36 says this, Jesus said, my kingdom, we stand for God's kingdom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would, pro- would, would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king there, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the, to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. In another chapter, chapter 19, one chapter later, verse 11, Jesus said, you would have no power over me if it was not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you'll let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar." Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. 
Jesus is showing that he comes from another kingdom. We as believers are a part of God's kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And and these kingdoms are living in conflict with one another. They're battling. We talk about it often for your heart. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God are, are at odds with one another. And it's a battle for your attention, for your loyalty, for your worship. And that's why we preach about it so often. But we've got to understand that as believers, we have dual citizenship. We're a part of God's kingdom, but we're also a part of this world that we live in. And that's why Jesus would say, pay to Caesar what is owed to Caesar. And he was talking about your taxes. Pay your taxes. Pay what you're supposed to pay. Paul says, we have our citizenship and it's in heaven, Philippians 3.20. And we eagerly wait a savior from there who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 12, verse 17, Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. You see, by, the Bible shows us that government was ordained and established by God to restrain evil. In fact, in Romans 13, my son actually is preaching this scripture at another church this morning. This scripture in Romans 13 talks about, Paul is talking about that we submit to the ruling authorities. Just because we're of the kingdom of God doesn't mean that we resist the kingdom of this world because the, the, the government of this world restrains evil. Now, when it conflicts, and that's another discussion, when it conflicts our spiritual values and our kingdom values, then we've got a challenge because we are a part of God's kingdom first, amen? But you gotta remember when Paul was writing Romans, in chapter 13, he talks about it. He was writing to a church, Christians in Rome, and, and, and the church in Rome was going through a very difficult time. There was persecution. There was corruption in the government. There was injustice. Women were being bought and sold into slavery. Immorality was at an all-time high. And so Paul was giving them instructions. But even in all of that, he was saying, you submit to the governing party. You submit to the government. You may not like who's in the, the, the seat of the president or the governor or, or, or the Senate or, or Congress, and we could go on and on, the mayor or, or whatever form of government. We may not like what they are about. We may not like their agenda, but the scripture is clear that we submit to them because God has allowed them to sit in that seat of authority. Maybe a Democrat, it may be a Republican, it may be an independent in the future, it may be some Green Party, who knows what it'll be in the future, but we submit knowing that we are under that authority because God has ordained the the government to restrain evil. The challenge for us as believers is to remember that the government cannot do what God desires for you and I, the church, to do. They cannot take our place. They cannot do what we've been called to do. And the church has been ordained by God to go and make disciples, to worship God, to help people know God, to help people experience God, to help people serve God. I'm not talking about just school of discipleship, but I'm talking about being salt and light in the world and to influence the world that we live in and let light penetrate and infiltrate everywhere in society that the glory of God that's in you and I is shining everywhere that we go. And this is the truth. If we will live like Christians, if we will act like Christians, if we will be in Christ everywhere we go, can I tell you that we would be the best citizens and there would be so much favor and glory and so much change in society if we would just be what we say we are? It's true, it would. Matthew 28, Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, Speaking to you, speaking to me, the church, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and we know it, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, to obey everything that I've commanded, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
So the answer is to understand the roles and the responsibilities of the church, of the government, for ourselves as individual believers, especially within the political arena. We can't expect the government to achieve only what the church can accomplish. You and I are the voice of God to society. We're the light and it's gotta infiltrate. If there's injustice, we've got to be the ones that say, this is unjust. If there are sins that are taking place, if there's things that are happening, then we've got to say, God, how can we be the solution and how can we be the answer and how can we penetrate? And that's not easy, I know. And we wrestle with it always. How do we do it? But we can't make it about politics and we've gotta make it about the kingdom of God. And if this is wrong, it's wrong. Let's call it what it is. It's wrong. It's not political, it's wrong. And we become the voice to society. I love what Isaiah says. Isaiah here, in Isaiah chapter one, verse uh, 17, learn to do good. Learn to do good. Don't just hear more sermons and become more religious. Learn to do good. If we would just be the church, if we would just be the light, learn to do good, seek justice. When there's injustice taking place, yes, we stand against that because we stand for justice. We stand for what is right. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. I mean, it's powerful when we, the church, will be the church. We can't expect the government to do what only the church can accomplish. And by the way, we can't expect the church to accomplish what only we as individuals can accomplish. We become the light. We stand for God's kingdom. I'm not gonna preach on it today because it's coming in a couple weeks intentionally. I wanna introduce it and that is we stand for righteousness. At the end of the day, what's right? What's right? What would God do? What's right in the eyes of God? Now, yes, we may have some disagreements around that, but what's right? If we can come together, we can pray, we can talk, we can, we can just begin to get our heads together and our hearts together. I have found God unites us together. That we can walk in one mind, one heart, and one accord. And when we do, there's an anointing. So what do you do when, what do you do when someone doesn't believe like you believe? How does the church respond to those that believe differently than us? I'm gonna leave you three thoughts. Don't have time to unpack it. But the first is you respond with grace. Grace is undeserved favor. You respond with grace. You respond with love. I love 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you can have all this knowledge you can have the anointing and the gifts of God. You can prophesy. You can know the deep mysteries of the scripture. He says you can have faith that moves mountains. You could sacrifice in your giving. You could even be a martyr. But if you do it all without love, it's nothing. You see, as Christians, let's remind ourselves of that. That we do it, everything we do, in love. And when someone disagrees with us, though it may frustrate us, it's in those moments that we say, God, give us love. Let us love. And then lastly, with discernment. How do you respond? You respond with discernment. What's the knowledge of God in our circumstances of life? Wisdom from God flavored in life. Discernment. What's the Spirit saying? 
What's the Spirit wanting? Discernment. Lord, I thank you for your word. And today I just stand on your word. And I pray, God, that even though it, it may go against the ethics and the morality and, the, and, 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 and just the values of this world that we live in, I pray, God, that you'll help us to be the church. And Father, we wrestle with this as believers. The early church wrestled with the same issues. And Father, I speak as Paul would have spoken to them through the letters. I speak now by reading those letters and reminding us of what is righteous. Reminding us, God, that we're a part of your kingdom. The kingdom of God. And and as we are, sometimes it doesn't line up with the kingdoms of this world. We stand for the sanctity of life. I pray, I pray for every young mother that would maybe find herself having to make difficult decisions. I pray, God, that believers would come around her. The church would be around her and walking with her. And Father, we would stand for the sanctity of life. For you're the creator, you are sovereign. And in that, Lord, we know that your ways will always come forward. And Father, we stand for the biblical institution of marriage, a covenant, a relationship between a man and a woman that you have joined together. I pray that our families will be stronger than they've ever been. Our marriages will be stronger than they've ever been. God, when we walk through difficulties within the family unit, that spiritual friends and family, and most of all, you, the Spirit of God, would undergird and strengthen. Today, we declare the truth of the Word. And all God's people said, Amen. If this ministry is making an impact in your life, why not help us make an impact on the lives of others by partnering with us today? You can give through our CLC app or at clcftl.org forward slash give. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe for more inspiring messages like this. Now go and be messengers of hope.